Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today we're lucky to have in the studio my friend, Dr. Lori Butts. Lori is the founder of the Clinical and Forensic Institute Incorporated. She's a past president of the Florida Psychological Association, and she's one of the few people who has both a degree in psychology and also a law degree also. She does extensive work in the prison system and the justice system, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with her, even though I know her for a long time. Lori, welcome to Exploring Different Brains. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for being here. Why don't you introduce yourself from your point of view to our audience? I'm a lawyer and a psychologist. I mainly practice as a clinical and forensic psychologist, which means I treat people, clinical psychology is treating people with mental disorders or having different problems or things like that. And forensic psychology is where law and psychology meet. So it's mainly doing assessments for people that are have alleged, allegedly committed criminal cr- crimes, um, helping decide what kinds of um, sentencing people may or may need, uh, what kind of treatment people need in the criminal justice system, assisting judges or defense attorneys or prosecutors with understanding what's going on with defendants and cases. How did you get into all that? It's a great question. Um, uh, I was in undergrad. Um, I actually, I started out in undergrad with an um, interest in teaching. And then from teaching, it went to psychology. And um, I was in an on- the honors program at Clemson University. And when it was, over the course of my uh, psychology career in undergrad, I, d- I decided that um, I wanted to look into places where law and psychology met, and there's really only two programs in the country at the time um, where you could get a law degree and a PhD in clinical psychology at the same time. It was at Hahnemann University and Villanova School of Law. It's now at um, Drexel University. And um, so basically, I couldn't decide. They both, both the legal system and psychology were very fascinating to me. Um, and, and just as my education went on, my path kind of led me in, in directions. And I always thought I would be practicing law at this point in time in my career um, until I met Dr. John Spencer, who was my mentor. And um, I started working with him. And I've never left the organization since, unfortunately. He passed away in 2005. Um, but he really shaped my career and mentored me because he was a brilliant forensic psychologist and clinical psychologist. You consider your specialty where the intersection of the legal profession meets and justice system meet the psychological profession? Or how would you put I, I, Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Sure. Okay. I mean, I have a few specialties, but that's certainly... What are some of the of other specialties you do, if you care to share them? Um, I, I, I deal a lot with people um, with trauma, so with people that have been both victimized and abusers. So people that have been victims of abuse and people who have perpetrated abuse. Do you find yourself discriminating 
In other words, I was an orthopedic surgeon. I remember at Boston City Hospital, when I was chief resident there, it was like a mash unit. And I remember one day they brought in a policeman who had who had been thrown off a roof by the perpetrators and like broke a lot of bones and was very much hurt. And then they brought in the guy who did it, who had a broken arm. And I was always trained, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, you don't discriminate, you're there to take care of both of them. Do you find that a challenge? Because you're treating some of the high-profile abusers and perpetrators, because I've read, I've read some of these pretty famous cases you've been on. And, uh, and you also treat the victims. So how does that sit with you? Is that a problem or not really? No, it's not. A, I wouldn't call it a problem. Um, and, and also those, those aren't mutually exclusive, right? So people who have committed and perpetrated heinous crimes, a lot of them have histories of being victims themselves. So it's it's not you know it's not black and white it's not one or the other. I mean, some, surely there are plenty of people that do perpetrate heinous crimes that have no history of abuse. That's pretty rare, though. Um, and so, I going into this profession, um, and there are a lot of people that I speak with that um, admire um, people that can treat abusers because. Um, they don't do that because of their internal problems, um, biases, or just um, uneasy feelings. But I always view it as I feel like I'm helping potential, prevent potential abuse. Um, and I'm, I'm helping the community by giving assistance and treatment and um, all kind, the necessary things that somebody needs in order to not reoffend to not perpetrate that abuse again. So I feel like it's a higher calling um, to be able to, to do that and provide a high level of intervention and treatment to people so that it eventually prevents abuse. So, um, not long ago, there was a local story about a caregiver with, uh, of someone with autism who was shot by a policeman. Um, apparently they were in the street and the autistic individual he's caring for was rather difficult. And um, what's been your experience with um, uh, educating law enforcement, what you see as the parts of the equation that we didn't get from that story and how you see things evolving going forward? I think that... One of the keys is police officers are hypervigilant um, and they have, they've got a heightened arousal. And so they're perceiving, so their perception in that heightened arousal state is they're trained to be viewing things as threatening. And so um, if your brain is, is, trained and on high alert to see things as threats, it's more likely you're going to perceive a threat. Just like if your brain is more relaxed and more happy, you're going to perceive things as more positive around you. So you're predisposed um, 
to seek, you know, to seek out um, things in your environment. So I, I think, you know, it, it, it's going to be a difficult task, but I think if you give the law enforcement um, skills and strategies to breathing techniques or um, strategies to kind of reduce that arousal response so that they can um, view things, you know, not be so quick to view things as threatening. But then, on the other hand, I'm sure the law enforcement's going to say, but I have to protect my life. So it, that's a really hard balance um, from their perspective is they're in a life-threatening situation. Their arousal is really high. They're trained to perceive a threat and to reduce threats and to also to be breathing and calm and to be able to assess the situation, well, maybe it's not as threatening. And we're talking milliseconds. I mean, we're talking these, uh, uh, you know, your brain is assessing the situation in such a rapid, um, and we can watch videos over and over and over again, but in real world, that's, you know, a minute at the, you know, that's a quick assessment and your life is on the line. So we've got to really find ways to balance out to support law enforcement so they don't feel threatened all the time, which, you know, considering what happened in Dallas, I don't know how we get there from their perspective. Um, but to all, you know, to get realistic appraisals of situations. I know that you've been involved with some of the actual training of law enforcement. How do you see the adequacy or inadequacy of the training of law enforcement. For instance, I'm an MD. Doctors get zip zero training in neurodiversity and different kinds of brains. They just don't, you know, unless you go into psychiatry. Um, there are programs now that started within the past, I want to say five to 10 years, to have certifications for law enforcement about mental illness, to learn about de-escalation, to under... So it, I, the answer is it depends. It depends on some officer. So in, in Broward, we have a, a Baker Act um, team where they're law enforcement, but they are highly trained in understanding mental illness because they respond to all the Baker Acts. And so they can de-escalate a situation uh, it's a, they work amazing. They, um, that's very different than, than a patrolman who doesn't have that training, who roll, who comes up on a situation where there's somebody with mental illness. They've got, so we're talking very, um, even within departments, not everybody gets this specialized training, um, uh, which is intense. It's expensive. And, uh, you know, so it, it there's a problem of resources. There's a, a problem of um, you know what you dedicate. Who who gets this type of training? Um, who uh, how much money you can actually devote as an, an organization to do that for um, mem members of your uh, of your team? Um, so so how, how would you rate the knowledge of law enforcement in the justice system at this point regarding neurodiversity, mental health, overall different brains. Uh, how would you? Better than 20 years ago, but certainly has a long way to go. Understood. 
Understood. Tell our audience how they can get a hold of you, how they can learn more about what you do, what the websites, what, what, what do you want to tell them? If they want to get a hold of Lori Butts and learn more, what do they do? Uh, they can go to our website. It's a, it's a, handful, it's a mouthful, cfiexperts.com, um, cfiexperts.com. Uh, Clinical and Forensic Institute, or just Google me. You can find me pretty easily. There's not too many other Lori Butts that are psychologists. <laughs> um, well, Lori, thank you so much for being here today. It's been great to have you. Thanks for coming in. I know how busy you are and everything else. So thank you very much for appearing with us here at DifferentBrains.com. Thank you so much, Hacky. It was a pleasure. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.